Thanks for downloading this latest episode of Octopus Energy's podcast, where we are continuing to give you further insight into the company's DNA, the way we work, the way we think, our values, and our people. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith, and together with my co-host, Trudy Lewis, we are using this time to speak to key members of the team to explore everything from our products and services to the technology that sits behind them and the culture that is driving us to deliver cheaper, greener energy. In this episode, we're focusing on growth and what it takes to go from zero to over one and a half million customers in just four years. And so we're thrilled to welcome Chief Financial Officer and co-founder of the business, Stuart Jackson. Later on, we'll also hear from Claire Osborne. She is an energy consultant and founder of the Mindset Society, and she focuses on startup to scale up coaching. Claire is currently working with Octopus, but her background includes two years leading the energy business for the comparison site U-Switch, just around the time of Octopus Energy's launch, actually. So we were keen to hear her perspectives on the market at the time and the impact we've had. But Stuart, let's uh, start with the fact that um, like your co-founder and our CEO, Greg Jackson, your background isn't in energy. So I thought we'd ask you the same question that we put to Greg, which is why you thought you can make a difference in this sector. Yes, uh, thank you, Russell. You're, you're right. My background is predominantly in financial services. For some time prior to starting this business, I'd run a credit card business. They're obviously very different, but there's a lot of analogies between the, the sectors. So what we saw in energy was obviously was an oligopoly, largely dominated by the big six energy companies. And they had pretty much uniformly been delivering comparatively bad customer service. The net promoter score for many of them was actually negative. That means they had more detractors than they had people uh, who actually rated them positively. There were issues with billing. They were charging very high prices. And were they more efficient, they should have been making a lot more money. And actually, at the time we came into the market, the CMA were just, uh, the Competition and Markets Authority were just finishing a study of the market to, well, based on the suspicion that it wasn't a properly functioning market. And there, there were a lot of very interesting findings. They didn't specifically find a market failure, but there were, there were a lot of issues that were highlighted. And that was a great backdrop for us to come in. One of the big issues that we observed in the market was the way the incumbents were pricing. So they would, and you see this in a lot of markets, they would entice customers in with a cheap offer and then for a fixed 12-month period. And then when the customer wasn't looking, prices would jump up 30, 40, in some cases, 50%. And, and that's how they made money. They relied on that dynamic in order to profit. And what we set out to do was use technology to build a highly efficient business that enabled us to deliver, to, to pinch a phrase from Asda, everyday low pricing. So it's consistently good value. Um, and and that's, that's what we've been doing. And, and actually, at the same time, we've been able to deliver not only lower prices, but demonstrably superior customer service. And the textbooks would typically tell you there's a trade-off between those two things. But actually, through the use of technology and a differentiated operating model and the kind of people that we've hired and brought to this, we've actually been able to deliver both of those things. So in the previous episode, we heard from Greg and he was telling us about raising the finances, all, all of what was needed basically to start the business. So just going back to the very first day and you're sitting in your office, you've got this 
10 million investment from Octopus Investments. So how do you then start to go about getting new customers? So as, as I remember, the first months were dominated by signing a tremendous amount of contracts just to be able to operate in the market. Uh, National Grid actually sent us two bankers' boxes of, um, of contracts. Uh, there was an awful lot of very technical, complex stuff that we needed to read, work through with, with our lawyers and understand the construct of the industry. But once we were through that, within about three months, I guess, we were able to start taking our first customers. And our very first customer came in on the 21st of December, 2015, it was a momentous moment. We all crowded around while we switched one of the team. And in the weeks that followed that, we set about switching friends and family and employees of Octopus Capital, uh, our backers. And actually, it was really instructive for us. So the message to all of those people was switching is easy. It, it's really genuinely effortless. And we can work through it with you in a few minutes you're almost certainly going to save a lot of money, especially if you haven't switched for a long time and you're being ripped off by your existing supplier. Uh, and we we asked people to share their bills with us so we could actually see whether we were going to save them money or not. And in pretty much every case, we were, and sometimes really material, hundreds of pounds uh, across a year. And obviously, because they were friends and family and colleagues, essentially, they knew that if if anything went wrong, we would absolutely make it right and despite all of those things people found it quite difficult it was really instructive for us about the the consumer psychology of switching so how did you make it easy for people to switch suppliers yeah so what what we learned through those early um early weeks was that it's perceived as complex and and in some ways risky even when we were saying to people we're definitely going to save money by switching so we did a lot of things pretty much straight away. We said, unlike almost everybody in the market at the time, in fact, I think everybody, we said there will be no fees for switching away from us. So you're going to commit to a 12-month contract, or rather, we are committing to giving you a fixed price over 12 months. And if you switch away in the meantime, there is no fee. And that, that took away one of the risks. If we weren't delivering, there was no downside for you to move away. We also worked really hard on the customer journey through the web sign-up. We made it as simple as possible, but just always giving you confidence that this is an easy thing to do and not putting any barriers in the way. We worked really hard on the messaging as well to try and reassure everybody that um, this was, this was a, a fine thing to do. So we used testimonials of customers. As, as we started to get customers, we, we got them to share genuine feedback. And we put that on the website. We also, importantly, we made it very quick. And we told people it was quick and almost made a game of it. I think our record switch was 31 seconds. So that, that away also started to take away a barrier. That's pretty impressive. But what I was going to ask, though, is given you were you know, so new to the industry, what, what would you say were the, the really big unknowns when you started? Mm. Obviously a lot. One of the big ones was... What's going to happen to customers when they come to the end of the fixed period of, of the contract? How many of them are going to stay with us? How many of them will want to refix on another product? And how many of them will just go back to a price comparison site and find, see if they can find a, a, a better deal or a different deal? And we, and we actually solved that problem by 
to get some early insight, we sold uh, really short products for a couple of weeks. I think it was a three-month product. So we knew that right, we didn't have to wait 12 months to get some of the learning, which was helpful. And no, I don't think anybody sold anything like that before. Okay, well, I mentioned in my intro that I'd spoken to Claire Osborne earlier. As a reminder, Claire was at U-Switch around the time of our launch. So I started by asking for her perspective on what the energy market was like at the time. When I think back that far, I guess the first thing that comes to mind to me is it kind of being a little bit of a mess. I, I remember, you know, just prior to that, there not being many competitors to the big six, you know, Ovo kind of being the biggest one that was going to go after them. And that that we were just kind of starting to see all these smaller, newer players enter the market. And, you know, it was really hard for for me and my role at U-Switch to figure out who were the credible new entrants there. And I can only imagine it was just as hard for consumers to do the same as well. So yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a really messy market, lots of options and a lot, not a lot of clarity on kind of what the good ones were. So, so what did you think then of Octopus Energy emerging as a, as a new challenger in the sector? Well, I guess my first thought was that we'd kind of seen some really interesting energy supplier names. We'd had Oink, we'd had Zog, and so Octopus, what? <laughs> but after that, I guess my first impressions were meeting people at Octopus and having some really in-depth discussions about like what the vision for our industries were and how those could come together. And what was just so incredibly different about that conversation was I was used to sitting in all these meetings with all these kind of these different energy suppliers and they were all coming and saying the same thing to me. It's like, we're going to be smart. We're going to be simple. And I'd come out of each one of those meetings going, great, but how? And what I got a sense for in the conversations that I was having with people at Octopus was that they really understood the detail of what they were going to do differently for consumers than the other people that I were speaking to. And, and that, that was really important. They were able to paint a vision for the future. And I think that's been a big part of their success, because it's that that kind of pulls customers to them, but also pulls the people to them who are going to make it happen. So Stuart, that was quite interesting what Claire just had to say there. What, what were your thoughts of, of what was happening at that time? Yeah, I, it was interesting. So there were in the certainly in the year that we started, there were probably another twenty energy suppliers also entered the market. And it's not surprising in retrospect to to hear Claire's reaction there. There was there was a lot of eye rolling when we would say to people, you know, we're we're a well funded new entrant with a vision that is going to generate a great deal of efficiency and we're going to be really differentiated from a customer's point of view. I think it's fair to say we we have done that, but uh, it was a reasonably crowded space in terms of new entrants coming in for a year or so, so or a couple of years. You know, we it kept us on our our game as well. So, Stuart, customers are now coming on board, but you obviously have to expand beyond friends, family, and new recommendations. What sales channels did you put in place to keep that momentum going? Uh, yes, so we we were there's a process called controlled market entry that's a, a regulatory requirement. So you have to prove that you can operate for a few months with a few hundred customers. And we came out of that in April 2016, and then set to starting to acquire customers. And you feel like you're you're starting to slowly put on the throttle. And you know we're still testing new ideas and new systems at that time. And a feature of what we have always done and we continue to do is testing and learning we're always testing things but one of the things i was 
very conscious of from my own experience in uh, in financial services is that the way you go to market and the sort of channels that you use to acquire new customers really can make a difference to the performance of the business. So the customers you get in one channel can be really quite different to the customers you get in another channel in terms of how likely they are to stay with you, whether they generate more or less bad debt or the size they are. Because some, some channels deliver customers who've got bigger houses or perhaps they, they just consume more, they're more, more likely to be at home. And I knew it was really important for us to build a balanced portfolio. So we actively went out and started to build different routes to market. So sure, we went to price comparison sites. That's the, it's relatively easy to switch that on. But we also started working with telesales. And I suppose this is probably a year or so later, we also entered field sales. So we, we started putting teams out to knock on doors. And that was very controversial at the time because it was only a few years before when some of the big six got fined for mis-selling and there were some pretty heinous misdemeanors. And we looked at those very carefully and said, how, how do we make sure this doesn't happen for us? And we were able to use technology to actually really control the sale and the process and give us tremendous amount of insight so that if there, if there were any issues, we would pick them up very quickly. We also invest a lot more in training and developing the people who are working for us. And the feedback is they, they actually love working with us because we give them a good product that's easier to sell. I think a lot of the mission actually helps as well. It gives them things that they believe in that they can go and talk about and share with customers. And, and we actually started to get feedback quite quickly along the lines of, normally I won't entertain anyone coming and knocking at my door and trying to sell me something. But in this case, the young man or woman was very courteous and they actually talked me through switching, which isn't something I've done for a long time or ever. And as it happens, I've saved a lot of money and I'm really grateful. It was a great service. And, and once we started to get some of those, we, we knew that we were really onto a good thing. And it was important for us to be able to reach those customers that weren't really engaged with energy. The thing is, if you go to a price comparison site, although the price comparison site might have already done some work to find the customer, those customers are people who are inherently more motivated to switch. And we wanted to reach some of those customers who had been the 30% or so of the population at the time who had never switched and who were being robbed royally by the big six. And so, yeah, so in that way, we started to build a, a portfolio of channels. In our quest to find those customers that weren't engaged with energy, we also started working with partners and the idea of using other people's brands and other people's customer franchises as a way to have that conversation. And we've learned a tremendous amount doing that over the last few years. But our, our first significant partner was the Arsenal Football Club, which was very exciting. And, and I guess it, it's probably fair to say that as a vehicle for finding new customers, it's uh, at least directly not great because clearly when people go to football matches, they want to watch football, not think about switching energy. But the brand association and the things that we've gone on to do with the club in terms of renewable energy and the benefits of renewable energy through this amazing illustration of us powering the Emirates Stadium. It's a, it's a very visual way of thinking about energy consumption. 
I think it's uh, three megawatts when it's running. You know, those are just numbers, but it's it's a tremendous amount of power, and that's all powered by renewable energy thanks to the work that we we do with them. And we've actually gone on subsequently to help them install a battery, which means that they are able to take more power when there's an excess of power on the coming into the grid, which is typically a time when there's a lot more renewables generating, and then they can consume that at other times when there is less generation happening, typically when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, and they can consume the power that was generated at times when renewables were, were in surplus. So it's really exciting, and it, it's, a, it's been a great case study for us. So, so you're going to continue with partnerships then? Would you say that that approach is really successful? Yes. Uh, so we've, we've subsequently gone on to work with Marks & Spencer. So we run Marks & Spencer Energy. And more recently, we won the contract with the Greater London Authority to run London Power, which they'll have very different flavours and in some ways different missions. But the thread that goes through all of them is excellent customer service and green energy supply. But I think the way we tell that story with those partners would be quite different. As a Spurs fan, I won't hold it against you that you chose to partner with Arsenal. But have you spe- <laughs> have you experimented with uh, you know with any other ways of bringing in the the sales? Yes, well, actually, we've done a lot. One of the early um, things we tried was selling and leasing actually smart thermostats. Uh, so we we worked with Nest, which uh, is now part of Google. And they told us at the time that we were the first, possibly the only energy supplier in the world that was actually able to add other items onto the bill. So our customers that took a nest, whether it was a purchase or a monthly rental, would just see that on their energy bill itemized underneath gas and electricity, which was exciting. We didn't do a great deal of that, I guess. In a sense, at the time, it was really helpful for us to build the technology to be able to do that and think about how we cross-sell and broaden the business. But there was just so much to do in just building our core gas and power franchise that we we really invested a lot more of our, our efforts on that at the time. I, I think in terms of other things that we've played with, we we introduced a referral fee. So any customer of ours gets a special code that's personal to them that they can then share with friends and family. And, and then they both uh, are rewarded, which is great. Makes everybody feel good about sharing good customer service. One of the things that we've learned through that is actually sharing services is a, it's a very personal thing. You stick your neck on the line a bit, even if you're getting rewarded for it. And people won't do it unless the service is genuinely excellent. So we, we feel, as always, we're we worry a great deal about the customer service that we give. But when you're asking people to refer you, it has to be great. We we also have special offers. Uh, and, that, and that sort of thing has been really interesting for us to experiment with. I think one of, one of the most defining changes in the industry that's happened in the last couple of years is the advent of a price cap. It's something that we worked hard on. We contributed a lot to the to the debate. And it's been hugely impactful for the industry. In, in what way would you say you know, it's been so impactful? Yeah, so you, you remember earlier I mentioned that there's this phrase that we, we coined working with a, a BBC journalist, actually, who, with whom we, we shared a lot of data and were able to, to really bring alive 
what was happening. And surprisingly, it's although every individual consumer might feel that big jump in price after 12 months, when you stand back and look at the data, as a regulator might, it's quite hard to see because it wasn't happening all of the time. So we we worked very hard to share data and, and bring alive what was happening. And what was happening was that the the incumbents were profiting very greatly from consumer intransigence. And when the when the cap came in, it effectively limited their ability to do that to some extent. And it accelerated the transition in the industry. So there were these dominant in terms of their market share, big six players who were profiting through this mechanism. They're pretty inefficient in terms of the amount of operating costs that it takes to run customer accounts. And they all knew they needed to start to become more efficient and bring in new technology and modern systems that join together all the different pieces that are required to run a modern energy service. But it's a very difficult thing to do, as any incumbent in any industry would know. And what the price cap has done has created a burning platform and meant that the, the incumbents have to change. It's become existential. So we've already seen SSE exit the retail business. Ovo bought that business. And Empower has effectively been acquired by E.ON through a complex deal. And we know the others are already working hard to transform their businesses. So British Gas recently exited its North American retail business, presumably to improve their balance sheet, raise, give them funding to be able to support and transform their UK business, which is predominantly what's left. So massive, massive change and, and a great opportunity for us, uh, of course, as a, as a challenger in that market. Excellent. Well, before we carry on, I also asked Claire Osborne what she thought of this uh, growth strategy and how she felt that Octopus Energy differentiated from the rest of the market. I guess what struck me about Octopus is that they actually really went out of the way to answer a question that was causing consternation in the market. So this point of like big price hikes at the end of, of contract terms, they went out of their way to create an answer to it and to package that answer up in a way that, that people could really understand it and, and buy into it. And so, you know, they had a, a, a pricing strategy which consumers could understand, but also that right at the kind of the sharp end on a results table could still look pretty competitive. But then kind of matching that up with kind of two factors, I think, like one basic and one kind of really about creating noise and glory. And and the basic being just get, you know, the service right. Like do whatever it takes to deliver something that you would be proud of, something that, that if you were a customer, you would be grateful for. And kind of working with Octopus, I've, I've seen people make compromises to make absolutely sure that that happens in a way where in many of the other energy companies I've worked with, the compromise would be on the, the quality for the customer. So, so, so there's that, like set a basic good standard and then match that up with creating products, propositions, messages, which create noise. So you use uh, something like the Agile tariff or, or Go, and uh, you create some noise about that. And then, and then once people are talking about it, they're talking about you in the context of 
and they're great in terms of the basics. And that makes a, a really compelling story. So, Stuart, as you're introducing all these new channels, what were you doing to monitor successful signups and, I'm guessing, that inevitable churn of some of your customers? Yes. So because of the proprietary platform that we were starting to build, we we had, and, and I guess one of the luxuries of being a newcomer to a market is is you can build technology from scratch that enables you to integrate all the modern things that were just add-ons for other people. And that meant we had great data at our fingertips and we we used modern ways of viewing that data. So I, I remember in the early days, we, we cobbled together very quickly a, a Google Sheet that we had on, on a big screen in the office with some key metrics, but probably principal amongst those was number of customers signed up by which channel. And we, and we looked at it all the time. In fact, I remember one board, one of our first board meetings, we, we had it up in the board meeting. And uh, at some point during the hour and a half meeting, it ticked up one. <laughs> it seems absurd now, actually, but it, it, was, uh, it was a joyous moment just to see that, whoever that customer was, pop up. When your small milestones come thick and fast and then they space out more. So we had a big, we had a big party at 10,000 and then I think uh, we probably did something at 50 and 100. And then and actually we were growing so fast after that that um, we'd sort of plan a party for the next milestone and, and accidentally burn through it. So we had to rename the party. <laughs> was there anything that didn't work? And if, if it didn't, what, you know, what were the lessons that you learned from that? Yeah, and lots, I guess, in honesty. There's always things, because we're experimenting and testing with things all the time. One of the sources of growth, I suppose, that didn't work well was selling to to landlords' properties between tenants. It's, it's known as the void switching. And, and actually, it's, it's not a great experience for anybody. So the idea is that the property's already switched to Octopus and whoever moves into the property is able to benefit from great customer service from and, and green energy supply from day one. And, and it was sold really through or to estate agents who typically are, are managing the lettings. Estate agencies become a tougher business these days, thanks to people like Rightmove. And the sell by the people that we were working with was that this would provide additional income, commission income to the agencies. In reality, the agencies, you know, they're they're even if they're managing a property, they they don't really enjoy a relationship with the tenant particularly. What we found as tenants coming into the properties weren't really engaged with us. They they didn't choose us, so it wasn't a great experience for them. And and, and often people would switch away or would would move on without paying because they didn't feel that they had a relationship with us. So that that was something we we did, and it didn't work, and, and we've stopped it. You know, periodically in the earlier days, there were issues as we were playing with the tech. If a collection didn't happen, then we need to make it happen very quickly. But but there's always a customer side to that. And anything that causes disruption to a customer's finances is is horrific. You know, obviously, we work very fast to to resolve anything. There was an incident, actually, uh, more recently, where... An issue with a third-party financial institution that, that we work with actually ended up calling a direct debit to one customer many times over. It was a freak tech incident. 
it's the sort of thing that that happens periodically uh, to any business. But when you're testing things and moving very quickly, things can happen. The key is that you sort it out fast and you're able to bring together a lot of resources cross-functionally across the business and get things done. So in that case, we were able to affect uh, a same-day transfer. We put money straight back into the customer's account. There was a lot of communication with the customer uh, and the issue was resolved and it was all fine. Those sorts of things become terrible incidents if you don't sort it out and a customer ends up fighting and struggling with the machine to get a, a genuine problem sorted and we're able to avoid that sort of thing because we, we are able to bring all the resources together and move very quickly to get things done and what we found is generally when incidents do happen customers are pretty understanding as long as you sort things out and you're very clear and you communicate well with them and they they're able to trust that you are doing what you say you do and we do so what about acquisitions tell us about how that's going and also you know the process for it yes you're talking about inorganic acquisition i guess a lot of what i've talked about is just how we organically acquire customers we we have done quite a few acquisitions now the the, the first one we did we bought small energy supplier uh, effect that was based in shoreham by sea near brighton at the time they had 20,000 customers although already we were quite a bit bigger than that. It was a great starting point for us to be able to prove that we could migrate the customers onto our platform, continue to deliver great customer service. And by the way, Effect, we're already giving great customer service. So to actually continue that experience and and handle all the operational changes. And and we've done that in several ways. We've actually taken on a couple of failed energy suppliers, most notably uh, IRESA, which uh, they built their own system that really wasn't working. And actually, it was a very complicated job to unscramble what was in customers' accounts and, and bring it onto our system in a way that was good for customers as well. And, and then with that one, there were over 100,000 customers. If you muck something like that up, your operations are sure going to be busy. So uh, we worked very hard and built a lot of technology to enable us to resolve those issues and interact with customers automatically around some things it was really helpful for us and enabled us to get through that within a couple of months and turn around what had been a very bad customer experience for customers until that point the feedback we've had is that they've subsequently gone on to enjoy a very good good customer experience with us Uh, and more recently we took on uh, the co-op energy customers which included gb energy and flow energy so the three different businesses effectively which in total had about 300,000 customers. And we did that uh, in the autumn last year. And, and actually more recently, we've also taken on the retail business from Engie, the French supplier. So we've done a lot. We've learned a lot through that. We, we've become very fast and very effective at migrating customers smoothly onto our own platform. But we, we've learned a lot through it. I, actually, talking about GB Energy uh, that, that we took with the co-op, when that business actually failed um, in 2016, I think, we, we actually applied or bid to take on GB Energy at that point when they had 160,000 customers. It would have been a lot for us then. We didn't do a great job of, of bidding and really understanding 
what was involved with taking on a failed supplier. So in many ways, in retrospect, I'm slightly relieved that we didn't take it that way. But we learned a huge amount going through that process that we were subsequently able to apply uh, with, with the other actually more complicated businesses that we took on subsequently. Yeah. And these customers that you've gained, how did you engage them in order to keep them? Because surely some of them could switch again. Yes, that's always true with, with any of our customers. And, and of course, when you're moving from one supplier to another, and, and the new one, of course, being one that you as a customer didn't choose, that's, that's a very risky transition. So yes, we we over-communicated uh, actively. Uh, so the outgoing supplier would send communications explaining what was going to happen and introducing Octopus. And importantly, telling people that Octopus as the new supplier would be the name that suddenly starts appearing in your bank account instead of the, the other supplier. And then we would then send communications to those customers, obviously introducing ourselves and explaining what was going to happen and telling them about us and why why we hoped that they would enjoy a, a great customer service with Octopus. And, and I'm, I'm pleased to say that the uh, amount of customers that we've lost through those processes have been relatively modest. Can you give us a sense of what growth has meant to you as a company, especially in terms of revenue, um, scaling, and how all of that has impacted the business? So we've we've grown our our first uh, financial year. We turned over fifty thousand pounds. The year that's just closed, we've turned over uh, about one point two billion, and, and through this next year, we'll turn over two billion, roughly. Which and those are incredible numbers, and and I, I've often sought ways to try and uh, to try and visualise that, and and um, I think probably the most striking one is the some of the largest football clubs in this country, in the Premier League, turn over in the order of five hundred million pounds a year. So you can think of this this year coming, Octopus Energy's turnover will be roughly equivalent to the top four or four of the largest football clubs in the Premier League. And that's which of course each of those in their own right are huge brands. They're global businesses. They're big businesses. So that, that really brought it home for me. We we tried to visualize it in terms of we, what would it mean in banknotes? And and it uh I think it uh, if you packed if you if you had it in 20 pound notes and you packed it into suitcases, it would take roughly seven jumbo jets I think to to carry it all. I mean, these these are huge, huge numbers. Now, now of course, it's um, it's a very narrow margin business. So, although there are really big numbers there, the opportunity to get it wrong and lose a lot of money is ever present. A mistake from a revenue that size can 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 hammer your profitability immediately. So, we've we've built processes the way we hedge is the the expression that the market uses for um, managing the risk that we take when we give a customer a fixed price for 12 months effectively we'll buy the fuel for that customer today and in that way we know that the price that we've offered you is, is a price that we can we can honor without losing a lot of money and if you don't do that you're crazy at any scale because the markets move around a lot in fact the wholesale price of energy increased by 60% in the six months to September 2018. Uh, and anyone, any any energy supplier that hadn't already bought fuel to match against the contracts 
they were selling to retail customers at fixed prices are going to be in a lot of trouble. So we, we've done a lot in the background and, and we use a lot of technology. So today we've got a small team of data scientists and artificial intelligence systems that we've built that help us forecast for every meter. And for electricity, we're forecasting consumption for every half hour throughout the day and every day for gas. I mean, the, and, uh, the, these models have billions of rows of data. There's huge complexity uh, involved with that. Stuart, I want to ask you about the future of the business. But before I do that, I also asked Claire what she thinks as an independent observer of the direction the company is heading. I think it's really exciting. Like it's it's really great to see the focus on um, technology um, because I think that's the thing that's that's really going to transform the industry and, and, and create a sustainable business for the long term where it's not just about selling you know kilowatts of energy it's really about enabling a much broader market to to grow both in the the technologies that will enable great use of um, energy by a consumer but also in helping other companies to revolutionize those markets so I, i think that's really exciting I think there's also, you know, some some you know tough challenges ahead for for Octopus. I think a big part of what's what's made Octopus successful is this really clear culture and vision for who they are, and using that to recruit people who um, who care about the same things, who stay up late at night thinking about how they can make the world greener or you know the technology that little bit more efficient. And I think that gets harder at scale and. The other thing that you know Octopus has done really well is is just move fast and to steal a term and, and hate myself for using a cheesy term, but you know they move fast and break things, uh, and that's an easier thing to do when you you've got that kind of tight culture where everybody understands what works and what the priorities are. I think as you know as they get bigger, it's going to be hard to kind of maintain that kind of. Yeah, constant force of, you know, bringing out new propositions, challenging um, their competitors and, and creating surprises in the market. And so, um, yeah, figuring out how to keep their culture and support their people through those things, I think, are, are kind of big things to look out for on the horizon. So, uh, Stuart, you heard what Claire thought there. What about yourself, though, about the future? Can you share any plans that you have to continue this uh, successful growth of the company? I, in many ways, the the opportunity and the ambition gets gets stronger. So when we when we started the business five years ago, the plan that we wrote was to deliver just over half a million customers in, in five years. And obviously we've we've broken through that very significantly. We we set out to build a highly efficient NG retailer through the use of technology. And we and we've done that. But what's what's actually transpired in the meantime is the way the energy markets are starting to change worldwide and and there's these common factors all around the world pretty much that there's this massive pressure for decarbonization and imperative that, that just gets louder one of the ways of doing that or part of the solution of that is to build renewable generation now that's typically quite volatile because it depends on when the sun's shining or the clouds are in the sky over a particular solar field or when the wind's blowing and how hard it's blowing those are actually quite difficult to forecast, particularly at short intervals. There's also consumer technology that's changing. Even in the five years, those things are changing. And the way consumers are getting used to interacting with their phone or having things controlled for them. Those things all bring together 
create this environment that's that's ripe for us where an energy retailer rather than just just supplying the electrons and molecules and that's it actually now is has an opportunity to help their customers consume power in particular at times of day when there is most renewable on the system a bit like i was describing with arsenal earlier actually now now that sounds far fetched because people don't really like changing their habits but and, and they don't need to as it happens if there's a battery in the house and and uh, some computer control technology then actually we can start to make decisions for people and optimize when they're consuming their electricity so you might still put the cooker on and the lights on at five o'clock in a winter day when the children are home but actually that electricity was was generated and fed into your battery perhaps in the middle of the day when the sun was shining a bit those are things that are present today and the economics of those things are becoming more and more viable what's hard is actually that control and enabling the systems that control those things uh, or incentivizing the systems that control these things to make their decisions and that's our role so we are able to expose different prices to customers that reflect what's actually happening in the wider system and do so in a way that incentivizes the whole system to start to change it, it's complicated but it's very exciting and, and that that is an opportunity around the world and the technology that we've built uh, enables those things to to actually happen and we are doing it today so the opportunity now is to scale that in different ways and in different places, which is huge. So what we're really doing now and thinking about is how we create a platform, a global platform and a global business operation that's able to support that in different ways. It's a huge challenge and massively exciting opportunity. Okay, we've got one final question for you, Stuart. Um, now, you've been very open with us about the organisation, but what we really want to know is more about Stuart Jackson. So, for example, in less than five years uh, since you co-founded this business, you've gone from zero to a turnover of one and a half billion. And in fact, as you said earlier, you're heading towards two billion. So that, that's a hell of a journey that you've been on to becoming CFO of one of the biggest private companies in the UK. So what we want to know is what have you learned personally in that time? What mistakes have you made? I'm sure you've you must have made a couple. Um, and what keeps you up at night? You know that that's the kind of stuff that we really want to know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, in truth, uh, we work pretty hard. So when when sleep comes, uh, I tend to sleep pretty well actually. But of course, there's a lot to there is a lot to worry about now as the business is, has got bigger. It, it's been an incredible journey. So. When we started, obviously we were a small team and we obviously had to roll our sleeves up and get stuck in and do everything ourselves. Previous roles, I've run bigger teams and, and uh, learned about being a senior manager and having some leverage. And we didn't have that to start with, uh, but that was great at that time because I, I learned a lot of very fundamental things about the business and the industry. And, and I carry a lot of that with me Today, it helps me think about and evaluate things uh, at a higher level. Obviously, as the business has grown and the pretty significant team here now, I, I have a lot more experts and specialists and people around me who can help. That's, that's so important. And throughout this journey, our board has been urging us to hire ahead 
and invest in people. And uh, that's actually quite hard to do, to find the right kind of people. Um, and, and we probably didn't do enough of that and haven't had enough space and time personally to sit back and see the picture all the time and, and actually look after ourselves as individuals to some extent. We've worked incredibly hard to, to build this and we continue to. And having talent around you, people who can actually start to take the ball, and there are many balls now, and start to run with those is, is really important. And, and hiring ahead, not waiting until you actually need people is definitely a big, a big learning. Um, I, I think nowadays, as the business has got to a pretty large scale, the big question is, what can I not see? What's, what's actually happening below the surface? And issues happen. That's, that's part of life, part of having a larger business with a lot of customers, and a, lot of, a lot of team around us. But if we've got the right team, the right culture, the right structure, and the right amount of resource in place, then I feel more confident that whatever is thrown at us is something that we can solve. The key, of course, is always seeing it quickly. Tremendous. Um, Stuart, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. W- once again, like your colleague, Greg, this was, uh, this was going to be a quick chat that's been about an hour. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure it could have been a lot, lot longer as well, because there's obviously so much to cover. But um, good luck with all those future plans, of course. But for now, uh, Stuart Jackson, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Also, thank you to uh, Claire Osborne for her contributions too. Um, as always, if you've got any comments on anything uh, that Stuart's discussed today, uh, please do get in touch via the website, and that's octopus.energy or via the usual uh, social channels. But for now, from Trudy Lewis and me, Russell Goldsmith, thanks for listening and goodbye.